Father, we thank you that we can be still. That our lives are not dependent on what we do, but dependent on what you do in us and through us. So, Father, would you meet us this morning as we look at something that we've practiced for years in the church in baptisms and we look at your scripture, would you speak to our hearts and to our minds this morning? Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to be transformed into your likeness? Thank you so much for the resurrection and what it means to us today. We ask that you would go before us. We trust you and pray this in your name. Amen. I met Galen right after his freshman year of college. My wife and I worked in a ministry to college and pro athletes, and we happened to be up in Minnesota doing a camp, and Galen was attending. He was a football player at the University of Minnesota and just finished his freshman year, and he got invited to this camp by one of his teammates. He came through this camp, and he got exposed to the person of Jesus, and he trusted his life to Christ that week. See, he had been putting his faith and his identity in the game of football that has carried him so far, but he realized after his freshman year that there's a better way to live. There's a more complete place to put your trust and your faith and your identity than the game of football. You can put it in Jesus. He trusted Christ that week. The next week, he came back as an intern to serve and help with other campers the following year. That year, he met a gal named Michaela. That developed into a friendship. That friendship developed into a relationship. That relationship developed into an engagement. And when they got engaged, they called my wife and I and said, hey, you guys have kind of been walking along with us in our spiritual journey. We would love for you to do premarital counseling with us as we head to our wedding. We gladly accepted. And anytime we do premarital counseling with a couple, um, towards the end, we start talking about the ceremony and what's actually going to happen when you walk down the aisle and what the purpose is to honor God, to make witness to your love, for your commitment to God and to each other with your family and your friends. It's a public declaration. And in the midst of that, I always ask couples that we meet with, is there anything about your story or your culture or your tradition that you would like to be a part of the ceremony? So Galen thought about it for a while and he came back and he said, yeah, there is. I would like us to jump the broom. See, Galen is an African-American man and there's a tradition passed down through years that was given to African-Americans in our country in a very dark season of our country in the colonial times when slavery was okay by some people and you could not get married if you were African-American legally. And so this tradition was passed down that even though people fell in love and wanted to be committed to each other, they said, here's what we're going to do. Because society on a lot of levels has said, we cannot be married. They won't recognize it. We're still going to recognize it together. And they would get a broom and they would put it down, and at the end of the ceremony, after making commitments to one another of love and respect and honor, they would jump together over the broom, signifying that this relationship is commitment, and we're moving forward. We're sweeping away the things of the past. We're jumping ahead together as a couple. Galen and Michaela did that at their ceremony. It was beautiful to watch. It's beautiful to be a part of. Have you ever been to a wedding that you don't quite understand the tradition of what's happening? And you wonder, like, there's some, many of you are Romanian in our culture, in our family, and we have, my wife and I have been to several Romanian weddings, and I'm just so curious. I'm asking questions the whole time, like, why are they sitting down on a couch during that part? And, and I'm just, I love getting the explanation because it just makes it so much more rich and meaningful. 
There's some traditions I just don't understand at all. There's one that's kind of going around right now on the internet where people will take off the bride and groom off the top of their wedding cake and they will put two panda bears up there. And I don't know, I don't know if you guys have seen this, I don't exactly know why that's the case. Nobody's told me. I don't know if people just like pandas. I don't get it. I don't understand it. If somebody would explain it to me, it would be helpful because it seems a little odd to me. The church has been practicing the tradition we're going to practice this morning for years. And it's baptism. And the church specifically has practiced baptism on Easter historically. And so that's why we're doing it this morning. And baptism is a little odd. It's a little confusing. If you have no context or reference to it, you're going like, somebody's going to walk up here and get in a horse trough (laughs) full of water, fully clothed. And then they're going to like lean back and somebody's going to hold them and then pull them. Like that seems pretty weird. And maybe you've grown up in the church and maybe you've seen baptism, but you don't really understand it. Or maybe it was never really explained to you, kind of get some of the nuance and the symbolism of it. But what I want to do this morning is for us to look at not just what we do in baptism, but why we do it. Why do we continue to practice this tradition over and over and over again every year? And the global church does it. We're going to be looking at a story in 2 Kings chapter 5 this morning will be our main text. So if you have a Bible, you can start flipping there. Um, 2 Kings is in the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible. And if you don't know where it is, there's no shame ever in just looking at the table of contents and just flipping accordingly. So if you have your phone or your Bible, you can open it up. It'll also be on the screen to follow along. And we're going to look at a story that I think will help us understand what drives people to this moment and why is it significant? Why is it significant? We believe here at Redemption Peoria, there's there's many ways you can baptize in the Christian church. There's infant baptism. There's paedo-baptism. We hold to the tradition of believer's baptism. And what that means is you have made a decision for Jesus. You've recognized that God is holy and right and that you as a human are not And you realize you need Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And you've made that decision, and now you are publicly declaring it to your community. That's what we would believe in how we practice baptism. There's a process to be baptized here at Redemption Peoria. We take it very seriously. There's a class that you learn about the significance theologically of baptism. And then you have an interview with someone to make sure, okay, they've really understood the gospel, not just regurgitating it, but they they get it before they go down into the water and make this public declaration. And really what this is in this moment, we aren't just saying that we believe that Jesus died and rose. We are saying that we too are choosing to die so that we can raise the hope. That's the idea of baptism because when Christ calls you, when Jesus awakens you to who he is, he says, come and die. That's the path. It's a pain-absorbing, price-paying, peace-making, cup-drinking, winning-by-losing existence that you're saying, I am all in on this. So let's look at our text this morning, 2 Kings chapter 5. This is a story about a man named Naaman. And uh, this isn't specific to baptism because it's not what happens in the story. But uh, the Old Testament, the New Testament, they are connected. The Old Testament points forward to Jesus all the time. The New Testament sees Jesus and then points back to him as we become the church and the new community of faith until Jesus returns. And so even in this story, Jewish people would kind of say, this is a foreshadow about what's to come with baptism. 
So let's read it together. I'm going to read 14 verses. I'll give some just kind of commentary culturally of what's happening to make sense of it. And then we'll talk about how it affects us even in what we're going to be practicing this morning. 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1 says this. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who was in Samaria, he would be cured of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord. Thus so spoke the girl in the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. Now, the ten changes of clothing isn't related to the baptism as kids are probably going to change before they get in. Um, And it wasn't how many clothes he needed on his journey. This was a a cultural reference to how much money he had. Think of rolls of fabric along with the gold and the silver. Think of Aladdin when he comes in to court Jasmine and he brings all his wealth with him. That's what's happening in this moment and in this line. Verse 6. And when he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, Know that I have sent you Naaman, my servant, that you are to cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive? That this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking to quarrel with me. So the king of Syria goes before Naaman and sends this letter with him. And the king of Israel opens it up and says, I can't cure his leprosy. Are you trying to pick a fight with me again? You guys keep coming in and dominating us. Is that what you're trying to do in this letter? Verse 8, he, the king clearly tells him about Elisha, the prophet. Verse 8 says, But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times. But Naaman was angry. And he went away, saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord, his God, and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Pafara, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. But his servants came near to him and said, My father, it is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Let's go back into the story and help us understand why we do this practice that we've done for years. What is the significance of it? What drives us to take steps towards this water? Three things. The first, what drives you to your baptism is beneath your armor. What drives you to your baptism is beneath your armor. So we see in the first verse, Naaman is a man of great stature. He has won victories. 
but he has something going on under his armor. Can you imagine? He's got all these victories, and he's probably on top of the world. And then all of a sudden, one day, he looks down, and he sees a sword. He sees it starts to spread, and he cannot fix it himself. And he realizes he's vulnerable, that he has a weakness that he cannot solve. Reminds me of Chadwick Boseman, who was the lead actor in the movie Black Panther, if you saw it. He was also in many other movies. He played Jackie Robinson and James Brown and Thurgood Marshall. He was one of the great actors of our generation. And we found out in August of 2020 that he dies of cancer. And all of us, if you remember hearing that news, you're like, wait a second. This doesn't make any sense. He looks healthy. He looks good. He had been battling that cancer for three years. He had shot seven movies in that time where he would go and he would shoot a scene and then he would go back not telling people and he would get treatment to try and beat his cancer. And it's so odd for us, if you remember, because we saw him up on the screen and he's fighting these guys and he's doing these unbelievable things and he looks healthy and he looks great on the outside. He has his vibranium armor, but underneath the surface, he was dying. Wasting away. There was something he could not do to save himself in that moment. And some of you still treat Christianity like God is only interested in what's on the outside. On whether you come to church or whether you dress a certain way or whether you act or behave a certain way, but God looks under your armor. 1 Samuel 16, 7, it talks about man assesses on the outside, the outward appearance, but God, what he looks at your heart. And the reason that people are stepping into this tank today, because they realize that. They realize they can do all the things on the outside with their behavior. They can polish up their armor, but there's something going on under the surface that is not okay until they come to Jesus. So the first point, what drives you to your baptism is beneath the armor. Number two, what drives you to your baptism is the recognition that worldly power can't save you. What drives you towards this tank is you realize, maybe for the first time, that the worldly power, the things that are offered to save you, don't actually save you. What does Naaman do when he realizes that there's this problem of leprosy, and he can't figure it out. The servant girl, which is just so fascinating to me as a side note, this servant girl has been captured, probably taken away from her family, and now she's in the house of Naaman serving his wife. And instead of saying nothing, she goes, there's a way to be healed. Even probably at the risk of her life. She steps out in love and said, there's a way to be healed. If you would know the prophet of the Lord, he could heal you. Naaman hears about that, and what does he do? Does he listen to what she says? And she goes, he goes straight to the prophet? He doesn't do that. He goes to the king. All right, see, Naaman is still operating in this idea of how the world works with its power structures. You can't go to the prophet. You go straight to the king. You go above. You have to go to the power players, the people that make the decisions. And so he goes to the king, one, to say, is it okay if I leave? But two, to go, okay, can you write this letter and go before me. And the king says, yes, I will do that. He doesn't go to the prophet when he shows up in Israel. He goes to the king of Israel. He brings all of his wealth with him because he thinks that will be the thing that helps solve the problem to help cure his leprosy. How does the king react in that moment? He says, I'm not God. 
I can't help you, Naaman. And some of us, if we're honest, we're still bringing things to solutions that won't fix the problems of our heart. And we all do it all the time, even if we know Jesus or we don't. I have a friend that used to own his own painting company. He's a follower of Jesus, and he would go in to do these bids on these houses that were trying to be flipped, and he would kind of assess the situation, and he would look at the wall, and he would start to realize there's a problem here. There's mold here. So he would go back to the people who were, he was bidding the job, and he said, you actually need to tear down this drywall because there's mold infested in here, and the people would almost always go, can you just paint over it? Just like paint over it. We're just going to flip it. We're just going to sell it. If you paint over it, it'll, it'll fix our problem. And my buddy in good conscience was going like, I can't do that. That's not okay to do. See, you cannot, you cannot fix a foundational problem with cosmetics. And some of us are doing that all the time. We're trying to fulfill our need by things that won't fulfill our need. We're going to things that won't actually save us. And baptism recognizes that the powers of the world, they cannot save you. The girl of your dreams, the guy of your dreams, he will not, she will not save you. I have the girl of my dreams. She's amazing. She cannot save me. Your physical body and your image, you might do CrossFit all day and Orange Theory and Peloton and you might just get all chiseled up and polish that armor and all those things are good. And everything I'm gonna read on this list is actually good and healthy for you. But if you put it above anything else, thinking that that thing is going to save you, you are going to be sad at the end of the day. The girl or guy of your dreams, your body image cannot save you. The perfect family, it cannot save you. If you've been trying to have babies and you want a family and it just doesn't seem to work out, and I'm not trying to invalidate the sadness and the grief of that, but ultimately it will not save you. Your theological pedigree, it will not save you. You know all the right scriptures, you know all the right doctrine, and you're just lined up, and those things are good, but it's not going to save you. If it doesn't point to Jesus, if it doesn't point to something deeper to save you, those things won't save you. And when I say save, I mean you're getting your worth. You're getting your identity from those things. If those things don't happen, you are just a wreck. Your Enneagram number <laughs> will not save you. Now, I think the Enneagram is a great tool, right? Some people have extreme views on the Enneagram. They think it's like the Savior and everything because it's unlocked something about them, or they think it's Satan and like the, the most evil thing ever. I think there's a healthy tension to go, this is a tool that you can use to get to know yourself better and understand who you are better, but it will not save you. And some of my friends in this category that love the Enneagram use the Enneagram as a uh, default to their sin. They have this argument with their friend, and I just told them off. This is my eight, my eightness coming out. That's it. No, dude, that's sin. You can't do that. That's not okay. Or like I was committed to this, but I backed out. I'm a seven. I want to do all the things. It's not going to save you. It's a good tool, just like having kids. Great. Having a family. Great. Working out. Great. Girl, the guy, your dreams. Great. They won't save you. Your perfect job, a full bank account, it won't save you. 
You might walk out of this room, and what if you walked out of this room and somebody just slipped you $100,000, just a happy Easter, he's risen. And they just give you that money, and you walk out and you go, okay, all my problems are solved. Some of your problems probably will be solved, but not all of them. That money will run out. It will not give you ultimate satisfaction. It's worldly power. It won't save you. The perfect home makeover, and it won't save you. Man, and I love redoing spaces. We've redone the spaces here on this property. I love, we put the turf in a couple weeks ago, and I love walking down and seeing your kids run on a Sunday. I love walking down in the office, and it just doesn't look like a prison yard. I'm going, man, this, is, this makes me smile. But at the end of the day, that turf is going to break. It's going to run out. The couches and the flex spaces are going to get stained and ripped up. They will not save us putting all our stock and energy in these certain things, even as Christians, and then we're really frustrated and disappointed when it doesn't happen the way we want it to happen. You cannot fix foundational problems with cosmetic solutions. You can't just paint over those things. Or you paint over it, and it looks good for a season, and then the mold comes back. And then you pick a different color. And we do it all the time. The people that are stepping into this tank this morning, they realize, they're saying, I'm no longer looking to worldly power to get my identity, to get my worth. I've got it in something different. It's in the person of Jesus. People that are getting baptized recognize that worldly power cannot save you. So the first point again is what drives you to your baptism is beneath your armor. What drives you to your baptism is the recognition that the worldly power can't save you. And the last thing, what drives you to your baptism is that God meets you in the healing waters. He does. And even this story of Naaman, as he heads down to the Jordan River to the water, there's a couple of things we can pick up from the story that relate to baptism. The first thing is that baptism humbles you. It humbles you. Naaman was proud. He was a proud commander. He comes in thinking, okay, this is the solution. Okay, I'm here. I'm ready. You solve it for me. And he goes to the king. He doesn't get what he wants there. So then you got to imagine he's just kind of fuming. He goes to Elisha's house, knocks on the door. He's got his posse, his entourage, his servants, his chariots. Everybody's with him. He's going, okay, this is going to fix the problem. Elisha doesn't even come to the door. He sends somebody, and you got to imagine Naaman going like, do you know who I am? Do you understand how big of a deal I am? My armor is shiny, and you're sending somebody, and you're telling me to go down to the Jordan? Naaman had to get humbled. He had to get humbled. And this is the same thing with baptism. Young men and women that are stepping into this tank this morning have realized this is a public declaration that you're saying, I can't do it. Can't. Can't do it anymore. I need Jesus to fix those problems. I can't paint over my problems anymore. There's a foundational problem within my heart because of sin. And Jesus has fixed it. And I want everybody to know that. It's a humbling process. And the way of following Jesus and following the Bible, the path is always towards humility. Always, always, always towards humility. Baptism humbles you. 
Second thing we see from this interaction where Naaman goes down is that baptism is powerful. It's powerful in the midst of God meeting you in the water. Naaman doesn't believe that at first, right? He kind of scoffs at this idea. He says, first of all, you don't come to me specifically and kind of give me all you need, and I've got all this money for you. This transaction is not what I was expecting, but now you want me to go down to the Jordan. He kind of scoffs at this. He's going like, the rivers back home in Damascus are way cleaner water than the Jordan. Couldn't I just go back there and do those things and be clean? And Elisha's going, God is going to meet you in the water. Right? So you always talk about, and you've probably heard this, like there's nothing magical about this water up here. We didn't pray over it or sprinkle anything in here or anything like that. It's, it's not magical. And I get that. But God does something in the moment. Let's not discount that. One of our cultural statements of all of redemption is we talk about life is supernaturally natural. Naturally supernatural. Meaning like it's just water, but God shows up in it. It's just grape juice and bread, but God shows up in it. He does something to Naaman in that process. Many people go down to the Jordan. They don't get clean from their ailments, but God has put his person to say, this will do it. Baptism is powerful. And let me, remind, let me remind us this morning that we're watching it. They maybe have some skepticism with this tradition and this practice going like, man, I don't know. Don't scoff at the water. God needs people here. He does. As they take steps of faith, he meets them here. And some of you have been baptized and you're going, well, I feel like God met me maybe for the moment I got baptized, but I don't know if it took. Because, <laughs> like, I'm a mess still. I still mess up. I still am imperfect. Let me just remind you if you're in that category. You don't come into these waters to get perfect. You come into these waters because you follow a perfect God. And this reminds you of that. It reminds you that the covenant that God has made with you is that even though you are unfaithful, he's still faithful. He still loves you. He's still after your heart. No matter what, it's not based on what you do or how you behave. It's based on the cross and the tomb is empty and you're reminded of that as you publicly declare, this is where I'm going. And these are the people I'm surrounding myself with. Baptism is, it's about community in that power. You can't baptize yourself. You don't go into the bathtub and just, uh, like, it doesn't work that way. You need somebody walking alongside of you. You need somebody, as you go down, they help you up. You know, that's a picture of the church. We need each other. We're going to fall. We're going to mess up, and we are called to come alongside in love and help each other in grace and truth. Baptism is powerful. God meets his people in these waters. That's what we're going to celebrate today. Because the tomb's empty, we get to celebrate that. So we're going to have five people baptized this morning in first service, one strong second service person is going for us. And again, we've had conversations with all these individuals to make sure, hey, we want to make sure you've died before we put you in and you come back up. That you've made a decision for Jesus 
You've trusted him with your life. And you will understand this is a public declaration to say, I am with him. I need the community, the body of Christ surrounding me, supporting me, helping me. And I believe it's because of Jesus' work and not my own. So those that are getting baptized this morning, let me remind you that you are unifying with the body of Christ in the church this morning. You have a family. You've had a family if you've decided that, but now you're making a public declaration that this is my family, not this church specifically, but the universal church. And that you're saying, I'm done doing it my own way. I need Jesus to help me. For those of you that have already been baptized this morning, this is a reminder of when that moment was for you, that it's still true, that he still chases you. He still loves you. He's still after your heart. Even if you've made all kinds of decisions that don't line up with him, he's calling you back to himself saying, you're not gonna find life there. Those cosmetic things you're trying to paint over, it's not gonna be life. Come back to me and help me, allow me to do foundational work on your heart. And for those of us that are in this room that have yet to be baptized, maybe you're not even a Christ follower. You would, you're just coming to support your family member or it's Easter and you feel like it's something you would like to do or maybe you're just here because somebody invited you. Have a conversation with that person that invited you, would you? And if you're a member of this church and you say, man, I've actually never been baptized. I think I'm ready for that process. Come have a conversation with us. We would love to walk alongside you so that next time we do this, you can be a part of it. Last thing. In Naaman, in this story in 2 Kings chapter 5, Naaman is a commander. He's a great man, but he has to be humbled to cure his leprosy. But Jesus is the great commander, the perfect man. It doesn't go down into the water, but goes down into the ground so that he can heal our leprosy of our heart and our sin. And we get to celebrate that this morning. We get to remember that this morning. And he's inviting you to the, t to the table this morning, if you're a follower of him. May we be people who bring whatever's underneath our armor to Jesus this morning. And may we be people that recognize and realize he is the only one that can truly save.